Morning, everybody. Please do take a seat. Let me ask you to reach for a Bible, if you would, and turn to page 228. Um, it says we're going to look at 1 Samuel 7 together. We're just going to read from chapter 5 before we do that. As you turn there, let me welcome you really warmly. My name is Paul. Uh, it's my joy to be the minister of the church here. I have been for the last 10 years and a thrill to be able to welcome so many people back to the church who are members of the church in times past, some who arrived and left before I even got here, uh, and then others that I've known well over the last 10 years or so. So such a great joy to be able to be together like this. Thank you very much for coming, and I know there's a fair few joining us uh, online from different parts of the world as well. You're very, very welcome. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to turn to 1 Samuel together. We've thought of your goodness, your faithfulness, all of the wonderful things that you've given to us. And so we praise you, almighty God, for the gift of your word and the presence of your spirit with us. We want to pray today that you would indeed fill our hearts with thanksgiving as we look at your word together and that you would renew our confidence in you for the future. And whether we're serving you now in this church or anywhere else around the world, we pray that you would strengthen us, that we might be faithful to you as you are faithful to us. And we pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let me read to us then from uh, 1 Samuel chapter 5. It's a particularly low point uh, at this stage in the history of God's people. They've just been defeated and the ark, which we'll think about a bit together, has been carried off by their enemies. Chapter 5, verse 1. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon, that's their God, and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon, and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon don't tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. He terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both in Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of the God of Israel mustn't remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, let the ark of the God of Israel be brought round to Gath. So they brought the ark of God of the God of Israel there. But after they brought it round, the hand of the Lord was heavy against that city, causing a very great panic, and he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came out to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they brought round to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel. And let it return to his own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors. And the cry of the city went up to heaven. 
And then maybe flick over the page with me to chapter 7 and the verse where we are going to spend uh, almost all of our time. Chapter 7 and verse 12. The people of God have now been victorious against the Philistines. So Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now, the Lord has helped us. You may also find it helpful to have an outline of the talk that was on the back of the notice sheet you were given when you came in. Today is a a day for us as a, a church to look back with real thanksgiving and to look forward with faith. As we look back, we have, as we've been thinking, so much to thank God for. Uh, We had a child who turned 20, uh, (coughs) excuse me, relatively recently. And uh, when a child turns 20, you start to look back on their life uh, a little bit. You think of twists and turns and highs and lows, periods of health, sometimes periods of injury. And if they're particularly accident prone, you kind of start wondering how on earth they've survived for this long. And you certainly want to stop and praise God as a parent for preserving your child's life and for being at work in them and through them. And all of that, I guess, is in our minds collectively this morning. The church began, as I understand it, with four people and no minister 20 years ago. And when you think of the challenges that we faced and the constant throughput of people such as life in St. Andrews, quite apart from our own weakness and sin, which is the greatest of all barriers to God's work. It is a miracle that we're still here. It is an even bigger miracle that God continues to bless us and to work in us, and indeed even through us, to bless others and to bring glory to his name. So we're right to stop and ensure that our focus is on God this morning, the one from whom all blessings flow. And so as we give thanks to him, we want to look forward to the the future as well. We want to remind ourselves why God put us here in the first place and to renew our commitment to serving him by making disciples of all of the nations in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And this single verse in 1 Samuel, I think, is a good place for us to be. We actually looked at it the very first Sunday we were in this building back in early 2019, I thought we'd revisit it this morning. My hope is it will both deepen our gratitude as we look back and refresh our faith as we look forward together. It's when Samuel takes this stone, sets it up between Mizpah and Shen, calls its name Ebenezer, for he said, till now the Lord has helped us. Um, If you don't know this verse and you've come across the word Ebenezer before, it's probably in the words of the the hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, that we'll sing as we close our service. But the footnote will help us that this name Ebenezer means stone of help. And uh, you know how when you you walk past a war memorial or you see someone wearing a a poppy, as we'll do over these next couple of weeks, you're meant to, to stop and to remember the sacrifice of those who gave their life to secure our freedom. Well, so that stone was a physical prompt for God's people. Every time they saw it, they were meant to stop and say to themselves, what a great God we have. How kind he has been to us. How much he has helped us praise him. And I've been thinking of our 
church birthday in a very similar way. The only reason we're still here is because God has been so consistently faithful. And we remember that and look forward together. Uh, Three points this morning. In the first, we're going to dig a bit deeper into 1 Samuel, see how God had helped them then, how that might transfer to us today. The first point's the longest you'll be relieved to know by the time we get to the end of it. So first then this morning, victory foreshadowed. And what is so remarkable about this celebratory tone of uh, chapter 7, verse 12, our little verse, is that only a few chapters earlier, Israel have just experienced one of the darkest days in their history. And we're just going to flick back so that we can see it. Glance back to chapter 4 with me, uh, verse 1, if you would, page 228. So the, the people are encamped, interestingly enough, at a place called Ebenezer, and everything seems to be going well in 4.1. Uh, the word of the Lord has come to the people. They're preparing for battle against the Philistines. And if you hit pause there and you ask in the Bible, well, what happens next? What usually happens is that God gives his people a great victory, but not this time. In fact, from this first mention of Ebenezer right the way through to our verse 7, verse 12, the text takes a, uh, the shape of a big V. Everything gets worse and worse and worse and worse for ages. And then God does something, and then everything gets better and better and better. Let's just trace that through a little bit. The downward trend, uh, chapter 4, verse 2, the battle begins. It's terrifying. By nightfall, 4,000 families don't have a daddy anymore. Uh, The elders ask the right question in verse 3. Why has the Lord defeated us before the Philistines? But sadly, rather than waiting for an answer, they resort to um, what one of the commentators calls rabbit foot theology. So in verses 4 and 5, they send for the Ark of the Covenant. And I mentioned that the Ark is a massive deal in Israel, symbolizes a whole bunch of things. It symbolizes um, God's revelation because it has the Ten Commandments in it symbolizes God's rule because God was enthroned upon it. It symbolizes God's relationship with his people because the the mercy seat on the ark was the place of God's forgiveness. So it's a really big deal, revelation, rule, relationship. It was never meant, though, to be a lucky charm. And the problem here is that the Israelites think that they can use it to force God's hand, that if they just take the ark with them into battle, God will have to give them the the victory. But God can't be manipulated like that. He's never forced into acting just because we tell him to. Even prayer isn't meant to be thought of as a formula where we tell God what to do and he then has to follow our will. And so here God withholds his help from his people. And the result is that 30,000 more soldiers fall all in a single day. And we've seen pictures of horrible slaughter and grief on our TVs in recent days. And this seems as bad and the numbers even greater. Even before we've had time to process it, worse follows. Um, The ark itself is captured. It's taken to uh, uh, Ashdod where the Philistines set it up in the the temple of Dagon. And again, the symbolism of this moment is pretty huge. So if the ark is the symbol of God and his power... Now the ark has been carried off into exile and it's being presented as a tribute to a foreign god. You're thinking, hang on, the Lord himself is now worshipping Dagon. It's a, a picture of complete humiliation, not just for Israel, but for God on the surface at least. 
Um, Phineas's wife gives a name to her baby that summarizes everything in chapter uh, 4, verse 21. She calls the baby Ichabod. It wouldn't have been great growing up with that name, I imagine. What does your name mean? The glory has departed from Israel. Um, I love what happens next, though. If you glance on to verse 3 of chapter 5, where I read, when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. When they rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon, and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. God's people would have laughed as they told this story to one another because here's the apparently mighty Dagon, the conquering deity, and now he is lying prostrate before the... Did I say prostrate? I meant prostrate. I meant the lying down one, not the other bit inside. So there you go. Prostrate he is lying on the floor. If none of you noticed, I've now just embarrassed myself. We'll we'll move on. Uh, It's sweet, though, because the the Philistines decide to give poor little Dagon a helping hand, so they prop him back up again. And action replay. This time, Dagon ends up headless and handless. And a little bit like Humpty Dumpty, not even all of the king's horses and all of the king's men and put poor little Dagon back together again. Uh, There's a detail that summarizes it neatly in chapter 4. We'd heard that the hand of the Philistines was against Israel, heavy against Israel. Now Dagon hasn't got any hands left. And the, the victory that follows as we come out of the V is a complete reversal of the humbling that Israel has just received. So the Philistines now receive the same sort of crushing defeat that Israel has just had, Um, And the thing that the text wants us to register, though, especially, it's not glorying in battle. It is how the turnaround is achieved. Or maybe better, who the key player is in this turnaround. And what's brilliant is that while Dagon is falling on his face before the Lord, there isn't a single Israelite in sight. They're all still back at home mourning their dead. There's no king in Israel. There's no judge like Samson even. So who gets the credit? Chapter 5, verse 6. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. He terrified and afflicted them because this is the Lord's doing and no one else's. And we started to read about this big game of pass the parcel that follows as the different Philistine cities try to make sure that they're not the one left holding the ark when the music stops. It's sent first to Gath, and the hand of the Lord is against them. Affliction, great panic. So Ekron, they're terrified. The hand of the Lord is heavy there as well. If you flick over the page to chapter 7 for the climax, the Philistines aren't learning their lesson So they decide to attack the people of God who's afflicting them. And the results are maybe what we'd expect. Verse 10, the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion and they were routed before Israel. So there's this stone. And verse 13, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. And the lesson for us is very, very clear. Um, There is a a genuinely awful, uh, apparently Christian 
children's chorus that you may have uh, had inflicted on you as you were growing up that goes, God has no hands but our hands to do his work today, no feet but our feet to lead others in his way. And I, I know what it's getting at. But when you read this passage, it would be hard, wouldn't it, to imagine a, a more gross misrepresentation of God. Can you imagine the Israelites sitting at home in their tents, bruised and beaten? The ark of God captured. They've just finished burying their dead. They know that the glory of the Lord has departed from Israel. And they break into song. God has no hands but our hands. Turns out God has his own hand and that he can manage just fine without us. That he is utterly self-sufficient and invincible. And that is the big lesson that this chapter was meant to underline, this episode in the hearts of the people of God. Explains the name of the stone. They didn't call it, haven't we done well? Isn't God lucky that we've been here to do his work these last however long it's been. He calls it Ebenezer because our help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. It's easy in, in our pride sometimes as, as human beings, even as churches, Christian organizations, to pat ourselves on the back, think that somehow we deserve the credit for the work that God has done and for the, the growth that he supplies. Ebenezer says it's not about us. It's never about us. It's about our promise-making God who wonderfully sometimes chooses to work through us but is never dependent upon us. And that is a great place for us to be today. It is um, genuinely incredible and actually quite emotional to think of all that God has done, even as Ian was speaking over these last 20 years. There are people in Ian mentioned one, but there are some here this morning who will, will spend eternity in heavenly glory rather than in infernal agony because they heard of God's love and grace when they walked through the doors of our church and they saw God's love modeled to them by a church family. That is a, just the most wonderful thought. You, you know how... Pretty much everything that we turn our hand to in life perishes. Sooner or later, we work really hard so that we can buy a car, and then before long, it's on a scrap heap. Spend hours in the gym, honing a body beautiful. And before all that long, in the grand scheme of things, it's in a coffin. Most of what we invest our life in is transient. But God has been pleased to do a work through churches like ours that's fruit is genuinely eternal. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. But it's not about us. It's about him. Till now the Lord has helped us. As we move on, though, we see that the Lord's great victory here in 1 Samuel was just an anticipation, just a foreshadowing of an even greater victory I called it victory accomplished, and you can imagine what I'm thinking of. Because he looked so weak, didn't he? Um, imagine you'd been there watching as Jesus was arrested and bound in Gethsemane. And then as Pilate had him flogged, 
And the soldiers twisted that crown of thorns together and pressed it into his skull. And as they mocked him, and as they beat him, imagine we'd witnessed them driving nails into his hands and feet and lifting him up to his death. You wouldn't have thought immediately, there is the king of kings. It looked like Ichabod all over again, the glory of the Lord has departed. Do you remember the um, disciples on the Emmaus Road? They're mourning the death of Jesus. And they said, we had hoped, we had hoped that this man was the Messiah. But as Christ died, all their hopes had died with him. It's as if like the ark in 1 Samuel, Jesus had been carried off to a foreign land and placed in a temple of death and evil so that he could pay homage to its God. Except we know that the cross was in fact the moment of Jesus' greatest victory. Uh, Colossians 2 speaks of God disarming the devil through Jesus' death. Hebrews 2 goes even further, says that through his death, Jesus was destroying the one who holds the power of death, the devil. So victory was accomplished on the cross, and it was announced to the world when God raised Jesus from the dead that first Easter Sunday, because death and evil had done their worst, but now the risen Christ was dancing on their grave. And it was a glorious victory. You know those words from 1 Corinthians, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's another great reminder. We often talk of the cross as a place that we receive God's love and his mercy. And I hope you've done that. I hope you know that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son to die on that cross so that even though you and I don't deserve his love and his blessing in our life, that anyone who believes in him might not perish for all eternity but have eternal life. The cross is a wonderful place of mercy and of grace and of love. We just need to receive it like a free gift. I hope you've done that. But it's also the place of great victory, a place where the, the head of the serpent was finally crushed by God's long-promised second Adam and king. And there is a great comfort for the Christian, for the church, in knowing that on the grandest scale imaginable, the future is secure because the victory is won. That the story of our, our world, whatever's going on in our news, isn't the story of a pitched battle between good and evil with an unknown winner. Because God has already triumphed on the cross. Jesus Christ is Lord. And he's promised that just as he disarmed the devil at the cross, so one day when he returns, he'll throw him says Revelation, into a lake of burning sulfur and destroy him forever. The devil's real. He's at work in the world, as we'll think, but he's a defeated enemy. And that leads us to our third point this morning. We've thought about how the victory that was anticipated in 1 Samuel was accomplished at Calvary and now how it advances in the world today. 
And I find it helpful to think of Jesus' death and resurrection like the, the epicenter of God's cosmic victory. But then to realize that his victory radiates out and in one sense spreads around the world, one soul at a time, as sinners hear the word of the cross proclaimed and come to believe in the one who died for them. Said that the devil's still active in the world today. The, the Bible says that his big work is to blind the minds of unbelievers. That's what he loves doing. He loves preventing people from seeing how good Jesus is, that he is Lord. He's in the business of unbelief. So whenever you hear someone say, I'm an atheist, or surely all the religions of the world are equally valid, or I'd love to believe in Jesus, I just can't, you, you can be sure that the evil one is, a, is at work. He loves to trap people in darkness. But the victory belongs to God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And they work through the word of the cross in the world still today to open blind eyes and to bring darkened souls into the light. So this is how the New Testament describes the work that God has done in the life of every Christian. You, if you're here this morning as one who trusts in Jesus, that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the, his beloved son, that he's called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And it's in those terms that I've been thinking of the work of our church these last 20 years. An, an awful lot has happened in the world in 20 years. Um, if you Google it, you can discover Apple have sold two and a half billion iPhones in the last 20 years. Uh, the 20 football clubs currently in the Premier League have spent a combined net total of more than five billion pounds on transfers. Um, the world's population has grown by, uh, by 1.75 billion. I didn't realize it was that much. Amazon have sold goods valued at over 2,700 billion US dollars in the last 20 years. Set against all of that, to naturalize, you might think, well, why would you bother celebrating a 20th birthday of a little church? Surely we're just a little Christian society that meets near a famous golf course that started with four people and now has a few more. Surely we are not that big a deal. But you take a step back and you can set the, the mini story of the last 20 years into the context of the cosmic story of our universe. Because every spiritual triumph that has ever happened here has been an advance of God's kingdom, an expression, if you like, of the ultimate victory of Jesus Christ. You mentioned those who have come to know Christ. I'm personally aware of dozens rescued from the grip of Satan and death and brought into Christ's kingdom of light. One of the great joys of life is hearing their testimonies as um, some of them get baptized in our church family from time to time. But we can add to that. It's not just the conversions. Every time you've come here on a Sunday in one of our various buildings over 20 years and been led to repent of your sin, every time we've been prompted to praise God, every time we've gone away hungering and thirsting for righteousness, 
every truth we've learned about God and his grace, every prayer that we've said out loud or in the quiet of our hearts, every act of love prompted by faith, every coffee or meal served in hospitality, every time someone has been strengthened to endure, to keep on believing for one more day, every time someone has died trusting in Christ and gone to paradise, every gospel worker trained and sent out to labor in another part of God's harvest field in Scotland and around the world could go on, couldn't we? But all of those things are amazing tokens of God's wonderful grace. Little demonstrations of his victory. And it's good for us to stop and look back, to raise an Ebenezer in our minds, and to say, thus far has the Lord helped us. But we never just look back in the Christian life. You know what happens if you try and... um, Try cycling sometime or walking, looking behind you and see how straight a a course. It doesn't really work. We veer off course if we look back for too long. So it is right, it's important that we look forward as well this morning. It's right for us to cast ourselves afresh on God's mercy for the future. It's right that we pray for God to be at work as we have done. And to do so with confidence, because we know that Jesus is Lord, and he will keep advancing his kingdom, one soul at a time, until he returns. On that day when every knee bows low, and every tongue confesses that he's Lord. He accomplished his great victory on the cross. We have the privilege of proclaiming it in the power of God, the Holy Spirit to a world that needs him so much. So once again, this morning, we renew our commitment. We regrow our confidence in him, I guess. And we set ourselves to labor for the glory of God as a church family, knowing Jesus and making him known, reaching out with the gospel to the world, building up disciples in the gospel, training workers of the gospel for Jesus Christ and sending all of us out into the world as disciple-making disciples. That's our mission. That's our joy. But we do it with our eyes on him because we will only achieve anything of any value as a church over the next 20 years or however long the Lord gives us if we keep our eyes fixed on our great and awesome God. It's never been about us. It must always be all about him. Let's pray together. And so, almighty God, we do bow humbly before you. And we recognize that you are the all-powerful, the self-sufficient one, the invincible, the mighty Lord who reigns forever, who has the victory over evil, over death, who has the power to give new life to all who ask the Lord Jesus for it. And so we thank you for the ultimate victory of the Lord Jesus. And we thank you for every single mini victory 
that has happened in our midst over these last 20 years. Some that we'll not know about till we get to glory. Some that we personally treasure in our hearts. We want to thank you for them. And we want to entrust ourselves to you and ask that you would make us faithful in your service, individually and together for as long as you give us. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. We're going to close by singing twice more. We're going to sing, Oh, praise the Lord, how good.